Hey everyone, before we get started with this week's episode of the Berman Hour Podcast, I need to ask you to please rate, review, and subscribe to the Berman Hour Podcast wherever you're listening. So go ahead and hit that pause button right now. Subscribe to the Berman Hour Podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a few nice words. They can be dirty if you're so inclined, but write them every little bit helps so very much. I know you might not think it does a lot, but it really does a lot. So please rate, review, and subscribe to the Berman Hour Podcast and enjoy this week's episode. Thanks so much. Hello, and welcome to the Berman Hour Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's good to connect with everybody, even if it's only through a podcast. At least it's, you know, hygienic, and we don't actually have to be in the same room together. It's not dangerous. We are still in a fucking pandemic, right? Great episode this week. Awesome interview. I had the pleasure of interviewing one of my musical heroes, really, Chris Barker, otherwise known as Chris Number 2, or as he's known on Instagram as Chris Dose from the band Anti-Flag. Not to be confused with Chris Head, who is the guitar player of Anti-Flag. I've never really spoken to Chris Head very much. I'm going to throw it out into the universe right now that I would like to have Chris Head from Anti-Flag on the Berman Hour podcast sometime in the future. So if anyone's listening that can make that happen, we should do it. I'd love to interview all of them truth be told. But this interview with Chris was really special to me. I did this a number of months ago when I first started doing this podcast on the Instagram live platform. Y'all have heard me say this, the Instagram live platform for actual in-depth interviews is quite a fickle and kind of not very good platform. And I didn't want this interview to be lost to the dustbin of history. So I saved it I edited it a little bit to make sure that it was still timely and good. And this is a great interview, and it really encapsulates what I wanted to do with the Berman Hour podcast when I started it, and that was ask questions that I genuinely wanted to know the answers to that I had not read or heard from the guests in previous interviews. And I tried to stump Chris politely. Maybe stump isn't the right word. I I really tried to ask him things that maybe he had never been asked. Did I achieve that? I, I don't know. I didn't actually ask him that question, but I felt that my questions were a little bit more pointed to certain eras of the band, specifically during the Kerry v. Bush 2004 political election. We talk about this past election as well, of course, and just about activism in punk rock and, and where he kind of sees anti-flags place in history because you know they're pushing 30 years at this point they've been one of my favorite bands for probably around 25 years and they deserve to be recognized for everything they've done so i'm gonna shut my trap i am gonna get this interview with christo started i hope you all enjoy it thanks for tuning in let's get it Good. That jumped in time for me. I was watching your intro, and then all of a sudden it was like, join, and I didn't get to hear the rest of your intro. But that's oh, okay. Oh, oh. Well, I was essentially probably- what you missed. I was just tearing down all of my my uh, my colleagues, the Seth Myerses, the Trevor Noahs, the Jim oh, uh, Kimmels. I just got to put them in their place sometimes. Uh, but no, did you hear me when I said that you were the lead jumper in Anti-Flag? Did you capture oh. That's great. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I wasn't always. What's what's interesting is all three of us, aside from Pat, Pat is behind the drums the whole time, but (laughs) we have swapped roles as who is the lead jumper. And it's just my turn right now. Well, I guess for the last 10 years. So we're doing it in 10 year parts. depending on who, who has to get knee surgery at some point. There's a great a great shot in the American Attraction video where like the opening riff is kind of going and you can kind of see you, you're like a cat, like you're walking across the cabs in the background. And anybody that's seen the band before knows eh, there, there's going to be a Chris number two jump and it's going to be yeah. sick. And it was awesome in the video. Um, I have to ask though, <laughs> because you guys have such a good sense of humor about yourself. Have you ever just like eaten shit so bad when you've done that big jump? No. Um, 
knock, knock on, on wood. wood, I have not. Um, I the the times when I've gotten hurt or whenever I am uh, uh, bruised my ego on stage have all been the dumbest things and have never looked cool. And like, I like remember distinctly um, playing a show in 99, maybe it's 2000 with uh, Less Than Jake and Newfound Glory at um, in New York City. And it was like the biggest show we had ever played. And literally like seconds into the show, just tripping over my own two feet. And knowing that I was going to land face first on the guitar, I like, turned and just, it was the worst sound ever. First it was just hitting and then it was, the bass came like a second later and just oh. landed on my chest and just did that. <laughs> and I, and my head literally was off the stage. So like my neck snapped back and there was just no recovery from being a turtle on your back with the bass guitar yeah. on it. it overwhelmed all we hadn't even played a note it was just like walking <laughs> on the stage and so um yeah i i mean thankfully knock on wood i've never hurt myself doing the shenanigans yeah i'd say i'd say your track record is pretty good at this point chris it's been 21 years since well, that tour. my, my, my tour. rule yeah my rule is that if I get on something, I have to jump off. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's led to precarious situations where you climb on something thinking it's a good idea. And then you go, oh, shit, I have to jump yeah. down because I refuse to climb down and defeat. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. But yeah. It's funny you say that. I saw Jesse Mallon a few months ago and, and he, he doesn't really jump off big stuff, but he'll climb down off of the stage onto the floor. Yeah. But he was wearing these nice dress pants. So him getting back up was a little bit of a challenge. So a couple of us had to give him a little one of those, like, let's, let's yeah. kind of help him. So I'm coming to you from Lancaster, Pennsylvania now. My wife and I just Frosted moved back. Yeah. So you are in Pittsburgh, right? Yes, sir. The reason I say that is because uh, I, the other day I actually drove by the warehouse, which was the site of uh, the only ever show I went to there. I think it was a one and done, but it was the first time I saw Anti-Flag. It was before you were in the band, but they were um, immediately, they were my favorite band. I think it was 95. Uh, If the seven inch was out, they didn't have them with them yet, but they had the demo tape and just some other kind of Pittsburgh band distro stuff. But was it the same for you before you joined the band when you saw Anti-Flag and you obviously knew of them in, in your scene? Were they one of your favorite bands? Yeah, so my story's a little bit different because I, I never saw them with Ant. You know, that tour you're talking about, they would have still been a three-piece then. Um, and if Andy wasn't in the band, it still wasn't Chris Head. You know what I mean? So um, it, pre- probably, it predates both of us. Um, so yeah. the first show, so I bought Die for the Government at the local record store um, okay. before I even know, knew they were a Pittsburgh band um, because they had mohawks and looked cool on the cover. Um, and I was just finding out about punk rock and wanted all things punk rock. And um, yeah. and I, I mean, I remember it distinctly. It was a FYE and you know robinson township you know and it was like the one place to buy cds in our in our neighborhood you know and uh um i got it because it looks cool and then opened it up and it said p.o box pittsburgh pennsylvania and i was like holy shit they're from here and like all of these things were affirmations that i could play music like the first thing was you know i i like I got politicized by NWA and my brother listening to, um, to, you know, 90s hip hop that was, you know, questioning authority. The police were a main topic of much of it. And it said the F word a lot, which really got me excited as a kid. Sure. Um, but then, you know, I found I had a, a cousin who introduced me to Bad Religion and Cringer and Green Day. And the Sonics of that made more sense. Then I found the Dead Kennedys and the politics then aligned with the Sonics. Um, 
And then all of a sudden there was this band in Pittsburgh who was doing it and it made me feel like, oh, well, maybe I can do it too. So that's why I started bands. Um, and the first show I actually saw of Anti-Flag was Jamie. It was her first show in the band and Chris had played bass for half the songs and they tagged her in and she played bass on the other half. And I remember, and this is kind of rude in hindsight, but I distinctly remember thinking, I can do that. Why? What? Like, this looks easy, what they're doing. And uh, I yeah. ended up being better friends with her than I was with anybody else in the band. And so, yeah, I mean, they were my favorite band because they were do they were the one band from Pittsburgh that was a accessible and, you know, always kind to me. I was a mess, like drinking box wine because I thought that's what you did to be punk. Like I was a like a shitty 15 year old kid and yeah. the fact that they that they you know didn't just like to the other bands in pittsburgh i was a poser and they were you know not cool with me but for some reason jamie and head and you know subsequently now i know that head was like you're a fucking nightmare get away from me because <laughs> we were talking <laughs> about it but um but yeah i mean ultimately it was there were valuable lessons that in how um, you can interact with, you know, the scene around you and the people that care and just looking for, you know, some of that energy and some of that uh, passion was misdirected at the time. And they saw that, but they were like, we can maybe help you direct it in the right way. And, you know, that was uh, like everything to me. They were listening to the demo tapes I was making with my other bands and, giving me notes and like even whenever I eventually tried out to be in the band the first practice I had with Justin I didn't know anything like he had to teach me how to hold a guitar pick like that's where I was what? at yeah oh yeah like I like played power chords on a guitar thought that the bass just went blah 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 followed along and then they were like here's the here's how you play like I can't even remember. Like we, we've got his gun or something like that. And my mind was blown. Like I could, I physically couldn't do it. And he, he thought that you know I had the right attitude and the right energy, just didn't know how to play. Literally, like I got to go through the my boxes of shit because like I have this yellow notebook piece of paper that's got like how to hold a guitar pick, what what you know runs to do to work on playing and. I, they eventually told me that I wouldn't be joining the band. Uh, and they went on their summer tour in 98. For the entire three months they were gone, I took a bass guitar with me everywhere I went. And uh, when they played their Pittsburgh show, I was able to play every song they had at that point. That's interesting you say it because when when Andy was in the band, his bass lines were, were pretty wild for the time. Yeah, they were very good. And then, so it, the records kind of reflect the jump from Andy to you, but it was, by the time you were in the band, like the bass, it, it was like, it didn't skip a beat. So I'm, I'm flabbergasted to hear you say that you were <laughs> that of a novice at that point. That, that's really quite, quite remarkable. Did those three months at home, not on tour really pay off for you? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. It, 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 it became, and I, I like, I've been playing catch up with those guys the whole time I've been in the band, you know, whether it's, you know, something as silly as this idea of you got to put your 10,000 hours in before you're good at anything, everything from, I was in another band called whatever it takes to learn how to write songs. And then even white wives, like those guys had those years of touring that you, when you saw them first and I was just a kid. So Literally, in my mind, it was just work on your craft and get better. I just wanted to get on that level so bad. So, yeah, I mean, literally, like, dumb shit, you know? Like, I couldn't hold a pick. So what I would do is take a guitar pick to school and on the seam of my pants, just pick up and down, arpeggiated picking, which is why eighth and 16th notes are my bread and butter right now because I did that shit yeah. like literally up and down on my seam of my pants all day long. Like you would be in class and you would just hear tick, 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 and people are like, yeah, that's Barker. He thinks he's going to be in a band. What a dickhead, you know, like <laughs> that was it.
Yeah, well, you showed them. Well, let's let's jump ahead a little bit. So that's ninety. <laughs> you showed them. I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I, I think so. I think so. Let's jump ahead twenty two years. You guys just put out a few months ago your new record, twenty twenty vision, which is excellent. The world kind of fell apart. I want to talk about the record, but you guys had a, you had done some shows to kind of promote the, sh- the record before it came out. I think that was the last time we saw each other when you were in Los Angeles and you guys started to do some touring and then you obviously had to cancel the rest. So two questions. What was the best moment that you had in this very abbreviated yeah. uh, 2020 vision cycle so far? To piggyback off that, did you have a feeling of of redemption where the, the record's out, we're doing what we're supposed to do? Like, Did you just have one of those sighs of relief and that lifting from your shoulders before everything was canceled and and it all went to hell? No, I never feel like that. (laughs) We never, there is no, there is no um, relief, you know? That being said, we started, we, we did a January tour. So we were on tour for one week before the album came out. And um, uh, sorry if you hear Judy in the background, she's a, since we've been uh, isolating, like she doesn't see anybody. So if any noise happens, it's like, there's a person coming. Oh my God. And my dog picks out. But anyways, um, we started in Spain and it was good. Um, but Spain is always good. It doesn't matter if it's a new record or what, like, it's like people are, you know, it, it's, it's not a place we hit as much as we hit Germany. You know, it's just, it just, always has a good tension to it and feels like uh you know it always feels good but then we got to germany and the album was like released while we were there and i remember distinctly those shows in germany when we would get to hate conquers all which is the first track on the record we would we played the sample before it and the lights are down and the sample hits and and there's a an audible cheer that they know the song and uh yeah my you know i still get tears <laughs> like I, I well up whenever it's like wow we made something and it's connecting because they don't always connect and um that's okay you know like like uh, i i think the beauty of art is that it comes in contact with people in certain times in their lives and it either makes sense to them or it doesn't that part's well out of our control. So that kind of goes into the next half of your question. Is there a relief? No, it's out of my control at that point. So the, the, the relief comes in, did I get the idea out? Was it executed? Is there a room to push this into a sphere that might better execute the agenda of the song whether it's the 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 messaging whether it's the injection of empathy whether it is the um just the emotional um uh you know for lack of a better term vomit uh on our end um yeah are there things we can be doing in the live show to make these make these songs or these ideas connect better um that's the thought process it's never about like Oh, good. Congratulations. This is out. Like there is no, there's no goal line in what we're doing. You don't give yourself a victory lap prematurely. You just, you, you look at it as an opportunity to start working harder and get that message out. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that we pride ourselves on and pride is, is, is a, you know, slippery slope, but when we do these things, you know, like a punk and Drublik tour or like, you know, or even just playing with some of our quote unquote contemporaries. The last four songs in our set are, you know, nine times out of 10, Die for the Government from 1996, uh, Brandenburg Gate from 2015, American Attraction from 2017, and Hate Conquers All from 2020. And I look around and I go, well, nobody else is this committed to the art that they're making in the now. It is mostly, and I, I'm not, I'm not talking shit like, like, uh, in, in any way. But it is sometimes new records for older bands are just facilitators to tour, 
And sure. I don't want to live in that world. That is not of interest to me. I want to be making new records and making and writing new songs because I want them to, to last longer than I do and to not just be a vehicle to go and do the thing that I've done since I was 16 years old. I don't want to get too heavy on your very no, go light hour. Uh, um, but when, you know, just like I was on tour when my sister was killed and I couldn't get home quickly. I was on tour when my relationship ended and it didn't seem like anything I could do would get back and put it back together. I don't do this because it, it, you know, is playing the show and having people clap for me. You know, that feels good. I won't lie, but the only reason to keep doing this, to keep banging our head against the wall is to be better at it, perfect the craft, but also find ways to subvert massive machines that are made to make, that are, you know, endless amounts of money are made to make us feel worthless, to feel uh, apathetic, to tune out and turn off. And um, if we can be one small chip in that, and that's, that idea has changed a lot throughout the band. You know, when the band began, it was, if we can get one person not to join the military, we want, you know, and then that turned yeah. into, oh shit, we're playing in Europe. If we can get someone to understand the intersectionality of capitalism and racism, like, yo, then we've won. And then now you're fast forward to 2020 and it's just like, well, fuck, things are so ugly right now. If we can get some Bill and Ted shit and be excellent to each other, like, like then we won. So the, the, yeah. the messaging changes. Um, if I worked this hard at Starbucks, I'd be the manager. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, this isn't uh, so fruitful. We can't walk away from it. Um, it's just, it is, it's the thing how to do the best. There's no reason for us to write another record unless it delivers in ways others haven't. Because of that, that makes us care about the songs and want to play them live and get over that hurdle of playing a song. You know, like, of course, when we play the press corpse, people are going to know it. The song's been out for 14 years and they've seen us play it live and there's a connection there. And so when you play a song off of 2020 Vision and it doesn't deliver, I'm not going to just abandon that right away. We have to put that 14 years into that. Unfortunately, I think that because of the internet, a lot of bands feel like, well, I put this out, it didn't connect onto the next thing. And I'm like, no, nah, let me just find a more clever way for you to hear this and experience this. And maybe you'll connect. Yeah. This, this is a great segue to a question that I had. You had mentioned in a couple of interviews, I think one of them might've been the Going Off Track podcast. And then you did something, I love when artists do uh when they participate in articles where they rank all their records i find that shit fascinating so something you had said in those interviews or had alluded to in those interviews reminded me of a very brief conversation that i had with pat in the catering line at warp tour years ago and it was, I think it was work is done <laughs> yes <laughs> yes it was 2012 and the general strike had just come out and we're standing next to each other in line, and I'm just trying to make small talk. And I just congratulated him on on the jungle strike, and, and I meant it because it's it's a it's a really good record. And Pat's response was was very kind, of course, because you're all y'all are always so very kind to everybody. But he just just kind of like, yeah, it's a new record, you know, it's a new record, and it was kind of mediocre and enthused, mediocre level of enthusiasm. That coupled with you stating in interviews that you feel like your fans can kind of tell when you guys are kind of operating on on your A game and when you haven't been operating on your A game. But from my perspective, it seems as if from 2015 until now, there's been an acceleration on the proverbial gas pedal of anti-flag. American Spring really felt like a turning point for you guys where you could have easily become one of these legacy punk bands and we don't need to name who they are, but that's who you were referring to earlier. I suppose when you have these bands, they don't need to put out new records necessarily, or they don't really need them to be good necessarily. If they're out, they just need them so that it can tour more and get some new rounds of publicity. 
But with American Spring into American Fall and now into 2020 Vision, it seems as if the four of you are firing on all cylinders in a way that is so exciting to watch. Is that an accurate assessment? Is that representative of how you guys kind of look at the last maybe 10 or 12 years of your career? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's very, very accurate. We were on the major sure. for, for Blood and Empire and for Bright Lights of America. And those records were labor, you know? The one caveat of a difference between the two is that the songs for For Blood and Empire were written before we had signed to the major. So we okay. had no, there was no peek their head in. Nobody looked behind the curtain until we were doing pre-pro, you know, and, and, and somebody was like, hey, what about a different bridge or whatever, you know, but there was no meddling in the sauce of it because it was pretty much done. That was our first, well, I, I guess it was our second because um, we did this on Terror State where we just wrote until we were done. Like, like there was about 30 some songs written for Terror State, roughly wow. around the same written for, for Blood and Empire. Um, and, you know, we used that model again on 2020 Vision where there's about 48 songs written for 2020 Vision. Part of that is that the major doesn't think... And no, no major label thinks that a record can be good unless an exorbitant amount of money is spent on making it. It's just, it's an archaic system. It is, you know, it's the Titanic and it ain't turning around very fast, you know. So based on that, we made For Blood and Empire in Los Angeles over three months at Sunset Sound and it cost RCA, a lot of money to make that record. And computers were still new, so three months was about right, you know? Um, yeah. And then uh, Bright Lights of America, we had those songs written. All of them were as grandiose as they were. We had the ideas. None, none of those, there's a lot of misconception about that, that that came from outside folks. That that really didn't. That was all internal. We, we wanted to make an, a quote-unquote opus, you know, that, that was our, our vision going into it. But we collectively thought, if we're going out on this limb, we should have some home cooking, too. So we wanted Bill Stevenson to produce the record, thinking that any of those indulgencies that we were going into, he would rein in and keep us connected to punk while sure. we had children choirs and timpanies and all the things that are on Bright Lights of America. The label didn't like that idea, probably because it was pre-Rise Against really having hits. But to them, it was just us going to make a punk record. And, you know, I think that even if we would have spent three months with Bill and Fort Collins, we wouldn't have come close to the dollar amount that they believe a successful <laughs> album needs to be spent. Probably on. not. Yeah. Probably and not. so... Yeah. We were we didn't know what to do. Um, and then Justin, who at the time was a big Morrissey fan. Subsequently, we all know Morrissey sucks. So <laughs> you, you lose some shit you like. Um, yeah, exactly. He was listening to Ringleader of the Tormentors a lot, which had just come out. And mm -hmm. that record has literally all the things we were talking about. It has orchestral instruments. It has crazy arrangements and and and. It's produced by Tony Visconti, and Tony Visconti made Man Who Sold the World, David Bowie, he did then Lizzie Records, you know, he's, he's a legend. The label gave us the ability to get him, and so before we knew it, this guy who had no business ever coming to our practice space was in there listening to the songs, but the thing he never did was go like, yo, four minutes is too long, because he was used to seven-minute songs, so yeah. um, so I think that when and this is really long-winded to get to what you're talking about but the, don't stop man don't stop this is fascinating I, I love this shit so keep going yeah the two records that follow uh the people are the gun and the general strike people are the gun is literally demos those are the one take of those songs written in the room banged out and just like fuck you, we're done. <laughs> we're not yeah. making a record for three months. We know how to make a record, but, you know. And, you know, thankfully, 
we had a really, the major was so afraid of us when they signed us that, you know, we had a two record deal. We uh, gave them their two records and walked away and um, were able to take a lot of that money. We built the studio in Pittsburgh. It, it reinvigorated AF records and the sure. revamp of that that came. Um, we were able to give money to, you know, fucking independent venues in Pittsburgh. We were able to start a nonprofit and combat military recruitment in high schools. Like we did so much with their resources. We felt like we had won the rock and roll swindle. And so just, you know, kind of reinvested in ourselves and said, we are going to, we're going to make these records. We're going to just kind of shit them out and do that thing just as a vehicle to go on tour. And that's why I think that, you know, general strike is a little bit better. Like I think those, like we wrote the songs and then tracked them, but no, man, I, I, uh, I completely agree that, that, that American spring, that was us combining the two emotions. We didn't want to label. So we made American spring without like out of pocket, just we're going to LA. I was in a band called white lives or still am in a band called white lives, but we toured with AWOL Nation and my friend Kenny, who produced American Spring, was in AWOL Nation. And he's just, you know, absolutely brilliant. You know, young, it knows the technology, knows how to record, knows how to make records quickly, but but still precisely, but also was a Florida kid who loves punk, you know, so he... It was this thing, like what we wanted yeah. with the Bill Stevenson stuff. Like when we have the idea, who can achieve it? But we also want someone who's going to be like, nah, bro, <laughs> you've gone too far, you know? And that was the first introduction to to this, to what the last three records have been, which is us essentially on our own. Nobody touches it. We write the songs, have the vision for what the album will feel like. You know, that South Park episode where they do stem cells and they crack the babies open. We just do that with like young producers. <laughs> so that's what we did with Kenny. And then that's what we did with Courtney. And on the newest one, we did that with Matt Good. Because yeah. I, I listen, I, there is no right or wrong way to make art. So, so do not take this as a dismissal of any path that anyone takes. For me personally, I no longer want to make records with people that are older than me. It's not of interest to me. It would yeah. be sick if Mick Jones called and said, hey, let's make our, let's do something. Um, you make an exception. exception for Mick. But yeah. I would still make sure that whoever is engineering it or whoever is there is somebody fresh out of school, hungry, ready to, to, to understand the new technology, the best ways to make the record so that it's sonically modern and, and 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 i love the first clash record but i can't put out a record called 2020 vision that's about writing our future and have it sound like it's fucking 50 years old it's gotta sound as modern as possible that's the agenda of the album and um Sometimes that's hard for people who, who like the band and want us to encapsulate or stay in a certain area. But my only thing I can say is that you experienced that. That was yours in the moment. Now let's have a new moment. Sorry to interrupt. I have to thank our sponsors of the Berman Hour podcast. First up, Hello Productions. You may know them as Hello TV. They are the ultimate all-inclusive live concert video production service. They bring an artistic approach to every live stream concert event that they do. And they can help you, whether you're a solo artist, you're a band, you're a band manager, and you want to do something for your roster, or you're a company guy, and you want to do something outside the box. Go to H-E-L-L-O-O-O-T-V.com, and they'll help you out. Do it now. Also, New Wave's Flow State Coffee, the best coffee on the marketplace. Go to newwave.co slash Berman and get 10% off your order. N-O-O-W-A-V-E dot C-O slash B-E-R-M-A-N. This is coffee that's blended with raw cacao to make it delicious. And L-theanine, which is an amino acid that naturally reduces stress and anxiety. And when you drink this coffee, it puts your brain into an optimum performance mode. So you get done what you need to get done. You stay focused. I don't know if I could have been a regular coffee drinker through this pandemic. 
working from home so much without this coffee because it doesn't give me the shakes, it doesn't give me the jitters, it doesn't increase my blood pressure, it doesn't give me anxiety. No, it's so well balanced, it tastes delicious. Newwave.co slash Berman. All right, back to the pod. Yeah, American Spring, I believe, was your first time working with uh, our mutual friend Doug Dean, who's a great artist. Was that yeah. the first record that he had done the cover for you? Doug's an interesting thing. And there's a bit of, you know, this is going to go into a weird space. But so I met Doug when he was very young. He went to art school with a person I was in a relationship with. They were the best two students in the school and consistently consistently trying to one up each other they doug loved the band and he would always send us stuff and it was always just like not right (laughs) but you could see the talent that he had and you could see that that he he wanted to make political statements he wanted to use his vocation to spread positivity and empathy when fast forward to 2015 i'm no longer in this relationship i thought subconsciously this might be a good dig (laughs) to hire this person who they were competitive with um so that was a bit of a motivating factor and then Uh, when i actually sat down and talked about the idea of the record with doug he then delivered beyond my expectations so it turned what what maybe started as like hey maybe you can do something and we'll just you know give a little poke (laughs) it ended up being really fruitful and um and now doug is is you know he's another member of the band at this point we don't talk about anything without going through him it's been really interesting so the last three records that he's done the artwork for have been I go and meet him. Uh, he walks out of his office. We go get coffee, and we literally sit down and we go like, "Here, are, here are the here are the songs. This is where they're headed." And then he's writing notes. And before you know it, we've spitballed and like everything, like the dichotomy covers of American Spring. They were right out front of the coffee shop in the north side. That's where that came from. The uh, using no scaling. Um, who Pat actually dated a girl, uh, Noah's sister, at one point. And um, thankfully, he didn't mess that relationship up. And uh, um, uh, Noah had this, had, you know, makes, that's what he does. He makes skulls. And he just, yeah. they're, 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 they're like, if you are one side of it, it's a pile of laundry. If you move around it, it turns into a skull. It's a... It's a really cool 3D installation thing. So we were like, how do we do that? And then we were like, well, Donald Trump's elected. White House, Oval Office, boom. Like all of that happened like that. And even the cover of 2020 Vision, you know, that logo, the the two X's, the MMXX for Roman numerals of 2020, like all of that was literally a 10 minute conversation between Doug and I. And then next thing you know, he's got... 50 different mock-ups because he's just brilliant. Did you have any hesitation putting Donald Trump, uh, even though it's a distorted and it's, it's, I'll say this uniquely, it's a very beautiful, mm-hmm. daunting image, uh, even though it's of him. But do you have any hesitation about putting Donald Trump on the cover of your record? So personally, no. But internally in the band, yeah, there was, it was a it was a very you know it ra- it went everywhere from you know convincing Justin and Pat to do it because they were skeptical of dating our art, and then it went to Chris Head who didn't want to do it because he's like I don't want to look at this guy ever, you know. The but for me, I had written the song Twenty Twenty Vision. I knew the album would be called Twenty Twenty Vision and concept of the art before we even recorded one minute of music. Like this is the first record where the art's been done before we went into the studio. I was just like a fucking Mack truck going down the highway. And I was like, let's go. And, and you know, that's the, the, that's the way anti-flag works is generally whoever's the most passionate wins because we believe in each other. And we know that if you, if you stand by this, I undoubtedly will come around. People ask us often if we 
have arguments about what the songs will be about or, you know, if anyone has ever raised their hand and said, I don't agree with that statement. And that never happens because, A, we all kind of grew up the same way, um, but B, we just trust each other. And, you know, when nine times out of ten, if something happens in the world and I see it, Pat is feeling the same way about it that I am. Justin's feeling the same way about it that, that I am, head and so on. So that's never been an issue. I think that, you know, we were concerned about, you know, people not wanting to carry the record. We had to get it cleared, all of this kind of weird shit. It's really funny. The album says photo courtesy of the White House, which is a brilliant thing that we got to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that photo is so... It's historical. He is the first ever president to take a photo for his, you know, presidential headshot, and then six months later take a new one. No one has ever done that. It's usually the one photo, and that's it. And so that photo, where he is, you know, chin down, authoritative, no smile, um, he removed that six months later. And I think that it is a, uh, you know, it's just a microcosm of how everything he's done has been dog whistle and then retractment, but the dog whistle lingers enough to stoke fire within, you know, openly racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, bigoted pieces of shit. And that's why we are where we are. So um, it, it just felt like a, a, a microcosm of his presidency as a whole. I like it more now after that explanation, because when you talk about kind of the, the bait and switch of, well, his entire existence, really, um, yeah. but with that yeah. story, with, with the change of, of the official White House photo, part and parcel with how he, he gaslights and how he uses Absolutely. that sort of mechanism to gaslight. And now you guys are kind of doing that back in, in his direction, which I think is, is really clever. I want to say yeah, we're, uh, a we're, shout we're out. far more clever than people give us credit for. <laughs> I'm just being an asshole. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, fair enough. My friends and I in college, we had a friend that was killed in a drunk driving accident, uh, Andy Burr. And at one point, you guys came through um, and you were at the 930 Club and uh, you were all really nice to us, which wasn't a surprise and we appreciate it. Uh, but you were especially nice to his uh, brother and sister. You made a shout out on stage and uh, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. It was a very, very simple, beautiful moment. And uh, I don't know if I ever personally thank you for it. So thank you very much for helping us honor our, uh, our fallen buddy. We really appreciate that. Um, I'll tell you that the only thing I know about grief is that it never goes away and you carry it with you, you know, much like many um, weights that we carry in our lives, it's not about eradicating, it's about management. And so I know very well that you'll see something, you know, might even be this conversation with me that brings up those feelings and those emotions. And um, those are valuable. That's how we stay connected to the people that we love. So uh, yeah. I'm sorry for your loss, my brother. I, 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 uh, um, the thing that I that I know is that 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 pain is is valuable because uh, it's what keeps us connected to the people that we love and uh, yeah yeah thank you I appreciate that I appreciate that greatly around that time I'm getting what my dates happened? the accident was the beginning of 2004 so okay. I think you guys came through with against me and rise against the 9:30 club yeah. in. Yeah. March maybe, and yeah. the accident was in January. Yeah, I, I think later it was that January or February, honestly, because that oh, okay. tour was yeah. was November, December into January, and it ended on the East Coast, so it would have been very close to then. Oh, okay. Um, a few months later, you guys were involved. There seemed to be a number of tours in 2004 that were labeled the Rock Against Bush tour, and um, I know that you guys came back through Washington, where I was living at the time. You were on a tour that was like that, and something that I remember, the show was at The Nation, which was kind of a shittier venue in Washington, and there was one one solitary, it was like the loneliest 
John Kerry political signage that you've ever seen. It was just one. It was on the top balcony. You could really barely see it. It was it was kind of a strange time because we had a Democratic candidate that people were unenthused about. And we had all of these great artists who were um, you guys were always speaking your mind. But we had, you know, bands like Green Day that were kind of tinging their their music and their message to be more political at a time when we really needed it. Here we are now, 16 years later, 2020, we have an election on the horizon. Uh, because of the pandemic, there's not touring happening, um, unfortunately. But we're in the same situation where we have a Democratic candidate that doesn't really drive up a whole lot of enthusiasm with our ilk of, of people, um, of our kind of punk rock, solidarity, activist, uh, cloak and cloth of people. Um, what was the most valuable lesson that you and your bandmates learned from the 2004 Punk Voter Rock Against Bush tours? And if you could be on tour this fall doing what you're doing for 2020 Vision, what would your game plan be? Well, okay. So first off, let me say, um, doesn't this thing cut off at an hour or something like that? It does. So we have seven, seven okay. minutes. Okay, great. I yeah. love, I love, I love, uh, wrap up, uh, uh, 15 years of politics. And <laughs> um, so here's, here's what I'll say. Um, we were in an advantageous situation comparatively to the other bands that were involved in Rock Against Bush. The simplest way I could put this is that we have been involved in activism our entire lives. For many of these bands, this was their, they didn't just, you know, they just got shoved into the deep end. Part of it was, and, and this connects very well with 2020, um, there's a lot of discussion about performative allyship. Um, there's a lot of discussion about folks who are doing something because the the backlash for being silent may be worse than the backlash from folks on the right whenever you say I got you. Yeah, I got you. Matter yeah. What. So I tend to not get bogged down in the weeds of that because I know that you know, fuck. You keep putting me in these corners where I have to say shit about other bands. But <laughs> <laughs> there are there were people involved in it because in rock against bush or in the you know get out the vote movement around 2004 that had never been involved in activism before and felt as if they didn't make a statement they were worse off than if they did that is a danger that is always a danger much like it's a danger now with somebody turning their instagram photo black for a day and thinking i solved racism it's over great but what I will say is that I know and actually have had great conversations with many people who would have never been involved in the political process had that performative part of activism not taken place. And people yeah. got turned on to it because I truthfully believe when people are given the chance to make a good decision, they often will pick it more often than not. So yeah. uh, I'm an eternal optimist. That's why I play punk rock because <laughs> I think the world can be better than it is right now. So that all being said, people find the information on their own. Sure, maybe some shitty band on Warp Tour who doesn't really believe the politics that they're talking about is that catalyst for that awakening moment. And then those folks walk over to Amnesty International and then become lifelong activists or, you know, one of the beauties of being in a band as long as I am is you get to hear about people like Mel who got involved in the political system on their own, but also were activated by punk rock. I know that there were people within state legislators who grew up. I know that um, there are, uh, grew up within the scene. I know that there are social workers. I know that there are lifelong activists. So, the roots are deep and the victories are there. Does it suck that somebody was wearing a Not My President shirt and, you know, probably didn't even vote that year? Yeah, fuck them. But, you know, there's shitty people all over the place. Like th this idea to, you know, uh, that, that we need everybody. We don't, you know, like 
what was it? 65 million people voted for Hillary Clinton. 63 million people voted for Donald Trump. 100 million people didn't vote. Give me some of those fools in the middle. <laughs> those other fuckers over here, they can go away for all I care, you know? Um, and then that kicks the can down the road a little bit further. I, I got a little bit off track. But what, what, what I'll say is that because of our understanding of activism, we knew that there was a potential that we would lose. Well, we knew that because just a year earlier, we were in the streets fighting the Iraq war with a million people. We're from Pittsburgh, a a population of 350,000. We had a march of 400,000 in the streets in opposition of the war in Iraq. And, you know, I played a show the night of shock and awe. So I knew the potential to lose was there. You know, movements of the people don't always work. I know that at the top of punk uh, of rock against uh, uh, Bush, those people never thought for a second they would lose. They thought if yeah. they put their money into it and they did it, that they were, you know, they looked at it very simply as uh, George Bush won because of hanging chads and 600 votes in Florida. I've got 5,000 fans in Florida. We're going to win, you know, and, and uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, yeah. Activism doesn't work that way. And uh, you, you unfortunately lose more than you win. But when you do win, it gives you the energy to keep going. I, I, I look at this moment right now where I've gone to, I don't know, uh, 60% of the protests that have happened in Pittsburgh around the Black Lives Matter mo- uh, movement that's happening right now and the people are so young. They're so connected. They understand the intersectionality of what is happening. It feels unprecedented and it feels nice not to be needed. I know I, I don't say that to put point blame at anybody. You know, we sure. ourselves could have been communicating better. Hey guys, that this this might not go the way you want it to go you know um but i also know that it felt and this is why i will forever especially in electoral politics never believe the job is done much like today you can't find somebody who you know in your immediate circle who thought that george bush was doing a great job you know that's just how it felt it felt universally understood that he was a failure and a buffoon and, and, and we were going to try something else. But you can't underestimate the power of war and the power of fear. Yeah, but this idea that the, the endless amount of money being put into a system to propel itself forward consistently, that really ramped it up and then it turned into being what the american political system is that we know now um and then now has such a backlash against and you see from aoc to bernie sanders to mel to all these all these folks who are refusing corporate money to run for office and and i feel like we're not going to get we're not going to get to a real place in american politics until corporate money is removed and then maybe some of these things that we all wish to see will come to fruition but yeah man i i i think that that um there are several reasons why it's not happening right now and why even if we were allowed to play shows i'm not so sure that it would be happening um the 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 you needed some of that performative bullshit to prop up um the the touring side of it and the economics of a quote-unquote rock against bush thing and now because people are operating out of such a place of fear with their art these days um specifically in music because the loudest fools in your feed are folks that want to tell you that Donald Trump is great or tell you that Hillary Clinton had emails or Benghazi or whatever. And um, it scares a lot of people away from taking stances. 
And that's not a thing that we were dealing with in 2004. That that volume wasn't as loud. Now, we've been in a band called Anti-Flag our entire lives. People have come to our shows in the 90s to kill us, to like actually kill us with, you know, swastika tattoos and fucking SS t-shirts. And then, you know, you, you, you fast forward to actually getting to a place where you're playing in clubs and, and feeling like, oh yeah, this shit's working. And then September 11th happens and we're in a band called Anti-Flag on September 12th and everybody sends their merch back to us and sends us death threats and, you know, and then, you know, when now when somebody's like, you're a libtard, I'm like, shit, man, you ain't trying to kill me. This is all right. I can take this all day long. But it scares away a lot of people, especially in younger yeah. bands or bands who you know, are using these tools to engage with their audience. And we want to do that too. And we want to be good at it, but we're frankly, we're grandpas. So we're never going to be as good at it as the kid, you know? And you're certainly not as dependent upon it. You know, you're certainly not as dependent upon it as younger bands are for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's a, you know, it's just from being from a different era. I just know how, this idea that if you work really hard, if you study, if you, you know, lip, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, all of this shit, it's becoming universally understood that that's nonsense at this point. And that is where we're going to see real tangible change in America. Because empathy extends itself in, in insane ways, you know? It, it starts with something as simple as being the dickhead who refuses to wear a mask <laughs> and it goes all the way to the abolishment of police from fucking St. Paul, Minneapolis to Palestine from Ferguson to Fallujah. That's the work that we need to be doing to make sure that, that, that those that are most marginalized, those that are most scapegoated, the most vulnerable within our societies uh, are no longer targets, but are able to be a part of whatever rising tide um, that we have in our reach. So, um, you know, I have a lot of hope and a lot of optimism in this moment, but I also know that, you know, this work, you're like, yeah, Anti-Flag's been a band a long time, and they wrote a song called Fuck Police Brutality in 1996, and I'm like, yeah, I saw Angela Davis come out of that car in Oakland, and I was like, fuck, we ain't shit. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the reality of it is, you know, we're yeah. just, our entire job and our entire purpose in this is to just be some bit, you know, whether it's people make fun of us for it, but I'm okay with being the gateway drug to activism. I'm okay with someone coming in contact with it because the song is catchy, and then they learn about something bigger than them and get involved in it and make it happen. That to me is, is the goal. That's the modus operandi of what we're doing. And you guys have been that for so many people. Thank you very much, Chris. This has been, this has really been an honor. It's been, it's been awesome. And it's, um, it's always inspiring to see you guys. It's always inspiring to talk to you. Dude, as soon as this camera's off, man, I, I got... <laughs> that divided heaven fucking guy. <laughs> Try to steal my art guy. That's my... <laughs> no, man, yeah, my no, brother, it's, it's... I love you so much, man. I, I'm, I'm grateful yeah, um, for any time we get to hang out and... Um, I, uh, there's, there's a lot of really brilliant and beautiful people in Lancaster that are doing really important things, whether it's good food or just good vibes. So I look forward to being out there soon and hanging with you on your turf and, um, you're always welcome here. There you have it. What a mensch. Chris Barker, Chris number two from Anti-Flag. I thank him again for an incredible amount of time that he spent with me in this interview. And it still holds up. I hope that you all got something out of it, too. I hope that you learned something new about Anti-Flag that you didn't know before. Because I asked the questions that nobody else was asking. So let's get it. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks for supporting the Berman Hour podcast. Once again, thank you to our sponsors, Hello TV and New Waves Flow State Coffee. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week.